Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter at Columbia University. I teach linguistics, among other things. My latest books are Talking Back, Talking Black and Words on the Move, Why English Can't and Won't Sit Still Like Literally. Today, what I want to talk about is something that I think concerns us all and that I think there are ways of looking at that don't necessarily occur to us. What I mean can be exemplified by the simple fact that in 1922, there was established a society called the International Society for the Welfare of Cripples. That's what it was called, and that was considered progressive and completely okay. Now, in 1960, as you might imagine, the name of this place was changed to the International Society for the Rehabilitation of the Disabled, not the Welfare of Cripples. But that exemplifies a phenomenon that we're all familiar with and that in some ways frustrates us, which is that a term that's considered perfectly okay today, for some reason, after 15 or 20 years, often it can seem for some reason, ends up being processed as a slur. And I don't think any of us are wishing that there were something called a Society for the Welfare of Cripples now. But when we experience this in the here and now, we can often feel like there's something that can be called and has been called by Steven Pinker, who needs no introduction, the euphemism treadmill. The idea being that to be at least a relatively enlightened person, is to get used to having to renew various terms, especially for things that are rather sensitive or prickly, to the extent that you can start wondering where you stand and why we have to keep having new terms for what can seem, after all, to be the same thing. So the euphemism treadmill, is it something we should roll our eyes at or Is it inevitable? And yeah, you can predict where I'm going to go with this. It's inevitable. But more to the point, it can be considered a good thing. And I want to give you a sense of what I mean. But first, we have to pull the camera back somewhat and think about the fact that it's inherent to words to change. Meanings are always in a process of transformation. The dictionary is just a snapshot of what a word is. And no, I'm not going to play something from an old radio sitcom this time. I mean just ordinary words. And so, for example, the word nice, that seems like the homeliest of words, nice. And it is. To say something is nice is a little 
non-committal, but that's a different subject. But nice. We all know what it means. But do we know what it used to mean? Nice started out in Latin as meaning ignorant. Nice meant not knowing. So today we think of nice as two nicely folded hands or some sort of cake that isn't chocolate or the like. But it started out meaning ignorant. Now, words always have overtones. Like when a bell rings, there's the dong. But then if you listen, there's the that's hanging out. Those overtones often end up affecting what the actual meaning of the word comes to be over time. So if you are ignorant, then you might be clumsy. It might be associated with a certain lack of grace. And after a while, this word nice means clumsy. That's how it came in as a French word. Nice meant clumsy. That's what it meant. Well, if you're clumsy, you're probably not proud of it, and it can imply a certain timidity. So <laughs> watch out for me. I'm just <laughs> timid. Okay. So after a while, nice means timid. Well, if you're timid, then it might imply that you're kind of fussy, that you're fastidious, that you keep your scrambled eggs separate from the grits or whatever you have on your plate. You're, you're fastidious. And if you're fastidious, which is what nice came to mean after a while, then probably you're a fan of the delicate, like lace. You like the precision, precise. And so nice can mean precise. And if you think about it, that's what nice means in an expression like, well, you're making a nice distinction. When you say that, you don't mean a distinction that brings you a cherry pie when somebody has died. It's not a kind distinction. It's a fine distinction. Okay. But if something is precise and things are in their place the way they're supposed to be, that's a form of agreeability. And next thing you know, nice means agreeable. That's how words change. They do it all the time. The overtones come to be the word. Now, what does that have to do with the euphemism treadmill? This. The overtones can include negative associations that we have with the term. And so if there is a term for something that's controversial, that a critical mass of people have unsavory feelings about, well, you can change the word in order to push back against the unsavory feelings. But the thing is, the overtones are still there. The overtones of those negative associations remain, and they're like gnats when you try to wave them away, or flies when you try to wave them away. They're going to settle back down. And so next thing you know, somebody tries to invent a new term and it has that same effect for about the same amount of time. It's just a natural process. That's what creates the euphemism treadmill. And so predictable it becomes that crippled used to be a perfectly respectable word that gets replaced by handicapped because people start feeling that their negative associations with the quote unquote crippled that we would like to fight against and most of us probably remember when handicapped was perfectly okay. But then we learn that you're supposed to say disabled. And you think, why do we have to change it? And that's because the same sorts of associations that had accreted onto crippled accreted onto handicapped. And so disabled. Well, nowadays, there are calls from some circles for disabled to be replaced for the exact same reason. By differently abled, from what I hear, differently abled is highly problematic to some people. And there are other terms that are being worked out. This is a typical process because of the overtones 
not the ringing of the bell, but that strange other tone that's hanging in the air that always have a way of affecting how we really think about a word, despite whatever the vanilla dictionary definition would be. Not too long ago, I was participating in a forum on social policy, and the person to my left was talking about something called TANF. I have to admit that I had to work for about five minutes to figure out what does this person mean by TANF? Then I remember, oh, wait a minute. It's T-A-N-F. It's Temporary Assistance to Needy Families. That is a modern term, perfectly respectable term for what used to be called welfare or before that home relief, which is a lovely way of putting what this kind of assistance is. But after a while, home relief was spat out by many people almost as a slur. That was replaced by welfare. I think most of us understand what welfare came to mean in the minds of many, despite whatever you see in Webster's. And so then came cash assistance. And today, TANF competes with it, especially in policy circles. There will certainly need to be something new within the next 10 minutes. And that's because the negative associations of welfare or whatever we're going to call it, persist, whatever the terminology happens to be. It happens in quieter little corners of our lives. And so, for example, here's something that we think of as just a word, but is it janitor? If you think about it, in real life, are you really happy calling somebody a janitor? Do you notice that in many circles, to say janitor feels a little funny? We feel like there's a bit of a slur in it, that it's not quite the right word. Isn't really custodian the right word? Yeah, usually it is. And that's something that goes back to the 40s when a certain accretion was felt around the word janitor. You can get a sense of this in, as a matter of fact, 1952 on the old Abbott and Costello TV show. The Abbott and Costello TV show, by the way, is highly recommended for those of you who think they were just some knockabout comedians from another time beating each other up. That's more than what went on with them, particularly on the TV show, which is absolutely surreal. There are two seasons of it. I wouldn't bother with the second, but the first season will leave you howling if you like things like Laugh-In or even Arrested Development. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's a joy forever. There is one episode where Abbott and Costello are having a conflict, as they usually are, with the guy who runs their boarding house and calls them boys, despite that they're these shabby, 40-ish looking men. And they're always behind on their room rent, which is the old word for rent. It's Costello who decides to call what we would today call the superintendent. Listen to what he calls this man. This man was relatively hairless, and so that's the root of one of the things that he says. But this is what Costello says. Hey, you bald-headed janitor! You call me a janitor? You heard what I called you? You... (laughs) I've seen better-looking pans under the icebox. (laughs) I don't happen to be a janitor. I'm the proprietor of this boarding house. I'm a successful man. More of my naivete... Back when I was a lad, I worked at the Allen Guttmacher Institute. It was one of the nicest jobs I ever had. They advocate policy on something called family planning. 
I was only 21 years old and I was working on their house organ, their magazine. I was familiar with all the text, but there was a lot about the world that I didn't know. And that included what the proper euphemisms were for certain things. And, you know, I spent three months there before I understood that the family planning that this magazine was about was about condoms and diaphragms. I actually thought that family planning meant people sitting at the kitchen table and deciding just when they were going to have children. Then one day I realized that couldn't be what this particular article is about. This is about condoms. And that's because that is another area where these euphemisms have a way of coming in. It starts with birth control in 1914. Think about how euphemistic that is. But then there's contraception, and that's Latin for against birth. But immediately that came to connote in most people's minds something vaguely physically unclean, perhaps, and that likely somebody around you wishes you weren't using. And next thing you know, you've got family planning. Good evening, and welcome to Future Choices. My name is Fran Snedeker, and I am the producer and moderator of this educational series, Much Remains to be Done to Bring Family Planning into the 21st Century in this country. When I was 21, I had no idea what that conversation was about. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Let's get down to it. Negro. So, Negro College Fund. Well, isn't Negro supposed to be an insult? Well, it has been for a very long time, not when that organization was founded. And Negro was replaced to an extent by colored. That was a perfectly respectable term, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. We think now, isn't that a little odd? Isn't it supposed to be National Association for the Advancement of African-American People, which would make it the NAP? But no, it's not going to be that because NAACP as a term is preserved in amber. After a while, black became the term of art. And then starting in the late 1980s, African-American. Here's another example where negative accretions around a term play a large role in determining that people decide that there needs to be a new appellation. And so from Negro to color to black to African-American. And notice that it's been a long time since 1989, which is when African-American crept into the consciousness of America to a high degree. 
And as a result, the negative associations, or at least dismissive ones, that are often associated with black people are beginning to settle down upon the term African American, just like rust. And an example is the way, yeah, our president has sometimes referred to African Americans just in the use of the the. All she's done is talk to the African Americans and to the Latinos. But they get the vote and then they come back. They say, we'll see you in four years. The African-Americans. Now, I'm not saying that to say the African-Americans is to say N-I-G-G-E-R, but it's a distancing tool. It makes black people sound rather remote. It makes black people sound like an eternal problem case. And however you feel about that indication, it shows that the sorts of associations that the renewal of terms were designed to counteract are coming back to the term African-American. There's some who would say a new term is needed. I've heard from some of the kids that black is back, which I like because I never stopped using black. But we're going to have to have more euphemism, more innovation, because that's how the interaction between terms and meanings works. Now, important to know, it's not always a matter of this sort of cleanup of unsavory associations. Sometimes this sort of change of terminology would be considered by many to be an indication of the progressive, that you're fighting what could be seen as Orwellian language. Hurry up! Hurry up! Hurry up! Waste time! Hurry up! Waste time! When you're racing with the clock! When you're racing with the clock! So, for example, efficiency. That's a term that in its dictionary meaning means whatever. We all know what efficiency means. But in the corporate sense, it used to be used to mean people getting things done in a particular way that involved working particular hours under certain what many later came to see as dehumanizing conditions or downsizing. We all think we know now what that means, including the smell that's on the term. But originally, it was invented as a faceless reference to a certain efficient policy of handling personnel. Well, the real world feelings about, say, people losing their jobs and being cast into unemployment settled down on that word downsizing and smoked it out. So there's an example where something that's genuinely a euphemism ends up being caught and (laughs) tamed in its way. What all of this means is that if we understand this relationship between words and the real world, we understand that the euphemism treadmill really is inevitable. Changing terminology can nudge thought. It can get conversations going. It can make people think about what our opinions and sentiments are surrounding an issue. Language change like that can nudge thought, but only so much. Communal thought is stronger than labels. And so, for example, my former colleague at UC Berkeley, George Lakoff, had an interesting suggestion that got around, especially in 2004. His idea was that the Democratic Party could advance its agenda more effectively with some terminological changes to things that had accreted certain negative associations. So his idea was that we stop saying taxes and instead we say membership fees. His idea was that we don't say trial lawyer, we say public protection attorney. Neat idea. 
And I think the only reason it stopped getting around much was because the Obama revolution ended up basically distracting us from anything that anybody had been talking about before, temporarily at least. But it was an interesting idea, except I would add that we would have had to expect that any change in thought that that kind of terminological adjustment made would have had to be temporary because after about 20 years, membership fees would be uttered with the same sneer by the same people as taxes was. So it would have to be a continual process. So a way to approach this is not to assume that we need a new term and let it sit there, but to assume that we'll need new words regularly for something until the thoughts change. We have to expect that whatever we invent will get hoary after about 20 or 25 years, and we ought to have it already in the plans that we're going to have new terms and just assume that we're going to have to keep doing that to keep the conversation going until the thoughts that we wish to change actually do change. But we have to assume, because this is the way it almost always is, that the changes in thought will be a gradual and even frustrating process. In fact, some people would try to just evade the terms altogether. The International Society for the Rehabilitation of the Disabled, that today is called Rehabilitation International, and the term of preference is just RI. So they're just flying over the whole thing. That's not always possible, however. And I think we should accept the euphemism treadmill as an eternal consequence of the relationship between language and thought in the real world. Boy, did I enjoy the flood of correspondence that I got last week about Lucille Ball's usage of the word hey. That episode was supposed to be about Hamilton, but 95% of the mail was about I've got a new broom hay. And I have heard from all over the world, from English speakers and speakers of Dutch, for the record, about that kind of hay usage. And it's been absolutely fascinating. However, I failed in communication in a particular way when I talked about this. I meant the usage of hay not with questions, but with statements. And so I have learned a great deal about the usage of that hay with questions. And the most obvious case was Canada. And so, of course, that hay is very similar to the way A is used in Canada. And I've heard a lot about it in Australia and South Africa as well. Those hays and A's are wonderful, but those are questions. We've come a long way, eh? Sure. But the Lucy kind, to use the official linguistic term for this hay, the Lucy kind is my dog doesn't bite hay or pickles can be sour or sweet hay after a statement. And, you know, folks, I try to respond to every email that I get, but I got so many based on hay that I actually, I just couldn't respond to everybody. Please know I read everything everybody said and thought about it. But there are two people who gave what seemed to me to be promising leads. Joseph O'Connell seems to be recording the Lucy Hay in Northampton, Massachusetts. And a lot of interesting stuff from Michigan and Wisconsin. The clearest example seems to be from Kristen Chirolis in Michigan. And so I'm still happy to hear examples. And one last thing. I want everybody to know that the reason I play these antique clips is not just because I like digging through my attic and showing you, hey, 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 look what I collected, especially since today I didn't collect it. It's all online. Now, I'll openly admit that the one about how America sounded in the 1930s, that was antique me. I 
frankly, that started with me wanting to share with America that little Bosco had said fuck. And then I built it out from there. But only that episode. Usually I'm playing these antique things because part of what I'd like to get across to everybody about language is that it's always changing because the change can feel so annoying, including to me, in our own times. And so the arlessness is to show that that's how language goes, not just so we can listen to how George Gershwin talked. Or we want to learn from podcasts like this that LOL in texting is not just something unique about the kids, but that these little words such as hey are part of speaking as a human being and that they go back as far as perhaps Lucy and certainly further back than that, almost certainly back to Africa 150,000 years ago. That's just how people talk. Or to leave you with something that Trump talk, the way it's been so richly covered that Trump does not use formal structures in the way that he addresses the country. Some people have said, I've been one of them, that what he's doing is he's just talking instead of speaking and that pretty much all of us just talk in our casual lives. We just don't think of it that way. It's hard to hear people speaking casually before about 10 minutes ago. I mean, especially if you're talking about people speaking casually in the early 20th century or before, it just wasn't recorded very often, even in popular media. However, there was something called not Candid Camera, which many of you will remember, that grew out of something called Candid Microphone. And the Candid Microphone radio show is all but unlistenable, except that you do get to hear ordinary people just running their mouths instead of reading from a script. And you know, it's surprising if you devote any of your life to listening through these otherwise very mundane episodes of what's considered funny in 1947, which today usually isn't. You do get to hear the man on the street who frankly is now dead and can't speak for himself or herself. So this is just an example of a cab driver, ordinary white working class cab driver on Park Avenue in Manhattan one morning in 1947. Listen to the way he talks and you'll hear somebody using a phraseology that is not dissimilar from the way our current president often expresses himself. I know the guy's a $20 bill. That's all I have. Well, where'd you expect me to get change for $20 bill this time in the morning? Well, I can't help it, driver. That's all I have. Yeah, but there isn't a store in the neighborhood here. Well, what can I do about what it? What can you do about it? What am I supposed to do about it? Well, I don't know, driver. You're supposed to make change, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, this is a bank. The banks are open until 9 o'clock, mister. Now, this is only half past 8 in the morning. This is oh. a taxi cab. Well, what can I do? Well, there's not a store in the neighborhood. You want to wait, mister? I'll take you for a ride. You'll go for change. No, I don't want to go for a ride. Well, this is where I, I want to go, driver. Well, then I can't help it. Why yeah. not? You'll have to pay me. I'm sorry. We'll have to go to a store and get change. Well, I don't want to go for any joy rides now, driver. I, I know, but you should use some common sense when you get into a taxi cab, mister, with a $20 bill. Well, I just told you that this is all as far we were going. Yeah, but you and so it goes. Tell you? us your thoughts about the show. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The show was edited by Mike Volo. I'm John McWhorter. Thanks so much for listening, and see you back here in two weeks.